0: Good morning, church family. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third. I want to welcome you, um, especially if you're visiting today. Really grateful that you're here. Um, if you've been with us at all this summer, you'll know that we've been in a sermon series studying the book of James together. And the book of James is a highly practical book. James is interested not so much in you just sort of having a little spiritual transaction with God so that you can go to heaven, but he is convinced that to follow Jesus means a transformational faith, a faith that actually matters for every single part of your life. Now, I warned you in the beginning of the series that James is gonna get all up into your business. And um, today is one of those days. I, you know, the, part of the reason why we preach through whole books in the Bible and don't just do like cool topical series is because it forces us to read and talk about parts of the Bible that frankly I don't wanna talk about. Uh, and this is, one of those, this is one of those ones, it's pretty heavy. And so I just wanna warn you, you know, put on your seatbelt, put on your crash helmet, um, and be open to how the Spirit might speak this morning through even a hard word. So let's go to God's Word from James, chapter 4, starting at verse 13. James writes this, Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning mist or the fog It's here a little while, and it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people. People who do not resist you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. There was a young teenager named Jackie Young, and her when she was a teenager, her family moved into a really wealthy suburb of Houston near the San Jacinto River um, called the Highlands. The Highlands was one of these beautiful planned communities that are built in sort of the rolling pastures around Houston, Um, their family had a beautiful home, five bedrooms, um, tennis courts, a pool, lots of pasture land for their horses. It was sort of this idyllic picture of the family dream, of the American dream. But about a year after they moved there, Jackie started developing some serious health issues. Um, She developed joint pain and some digestive issues, then she started having a lot of fatigue. Turns out she was getting ovarian cysts, And ultimately, she started experiencing multiple seizures a week, and the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. And then her family, other family members started experiencing this. Her dad also went to the doctor, discovered he had pretty serious uh, bone cancer. Um, And as they talked to others, realized that this was actually pervasive in this community. It turns out that all was not well in the Highlands, despite its exterior beauty but that in 1965, a paper mill had worked out a contract to dispose of its industrial waste in waste pits right along the banks of the San Jacinto River. And they did it for a few years and then stopped the project, but over those next four decades, uh, as the riverbank eroded between the waste pits and the river, ultimately, four decades in, the waste pits were completely submerged within the San Jacinto River, even as these beautiful suburbs were being built around it. Much too the ignorance of everyone there until it was too late in the late 2000s when not just Jackie's family but everyone in this community was experiencing massive and crippling disease and illness, seizures, cancer, and death. I mean, what a a shocking juxtaposition, right? This picture, this idyllic picture of the American dream literally built on pits of toxic waste wielding destruction and death. So as disturbing as that picture looks like that's kind of an apt illustration for the warning that James is giving us this morning in many ways he's saying that if we are not careful uh, that very thing will happen to us We're not sure that who James is writing to we do know that in the first century it was actually kind of an economic boom in the Mediterranean world at the time there was all sorts of new wealth pouring into the Mediterranean region we know that many people, many Jews, were moving from Palestine to live around the middle, around the Mediterranean and a whole new merchant class was developing and a whole lot of new wealth was being created. And so what seems to be happening is that James is giving this word to this new wealthy merchant class. What's not clear is are these people actually in the church or is he speaking to people outside of the church? It's not really clear, but what is clear is this, is that James is giving a serious warning about the toxic dangers of wealth. He's saying that it's not bad, money's not bad. Jesus never says, the Bible never says money is bad, but to have money and to have wealth and to accumulate it is to put yourself into serious, grave, not physical, but spiritual danger. Now, some of you might already be turning off and you're saying, oh, great, this sermon's not about me because I'm not rich. Listen, uh, can I be real with you? If you make more than $32,000 a year, you are in the 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. You're the 1%. We are the 1%, friends. Uh, If you are listening to the sermon, if you are here, if you can read, if you got here by a car, I don't care. You might be like struggling and feeling like you're just getting by, but there are other people on the planet who look at you and see that you're Bill Gates. Like you are fabulously wealthy. And so I just wanna say that as hard as this message is, this is for all of us, kids, even for you. This is for all of us. It is impossible to live in a society like we are living in. It is impossible to live in a society that is inflicted by what many sociologists call the disease of affluenza, which is, as one put it, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of the American dream. It is not possible to live in a society infected with affluenza and not realize that this warning is for you. That if we're not careful, we might be ourselves be trapped in this deadly, silent, soul-destroying, life-shriveling toxicity that brings destruction. And I want y'all to know, I, I just want to give a disclaimer. I have no agenda here. We already had the offering. It's not happening. Again, you know, I'm not going to do like a second gill offering after the sermon. Certain- hey, y'all now, you know, I don't need your money. I don't. You know, I'm trying to be faithful to the text this morning And say that this is about health Uh, This is about Jesus Through his servant James Wanting to protect you from spiritual destruction Because he wants you to know life That is truly life Okay, do you believe me on that? Okay, so here's what we're going to do We're going to first give the diagnosis Talk about these serious health warnings That James is offering And then we'll talk about the treatment Okay, health warnings, treatment Health warnings, treatment Y'all with me? Okay first the health warnings So first let's look at Number one James says the first warning is presumption He says in verse 13 of chapter 4 Look here you who say today or tomorrow We will go to such and such a town And we'll stay there and make a profit And in verse 16 he talks about boasting about your own pretentious plans Let's be clear He's not sort of saying you shouldn't plan Or save or invest or make a profit Um, We know lots of wisdom literature Book of Proverbs all about the wisdom Of doing such things What he's warning against is that those who tend to become more financially secure uh, tend to develop attitudes of prideful self-sufficiency. That the more money we have, um, the more security we have, the more we have in our bank accounts, the more we have in our stock portfolios, the more we tend to believe that we are actually in control of our lives and have secure futures ahead of us. You know, I'll never forget talking to an African PhD student when I was at Princeton, who was sharing about how he was losing his faith. Now, you'd think he was losing his faith because he was in this sort of liberal academic Western environment. But he said he was losing his faith because back in Africa, things were so politically and socially and economically unstable that he was constantly relying on God every single day for his life and for the food on his table. And now he was in the West, and he was in this prosperous environment. He had a scholarship. He had a place to live. He had a cafeteria that fed him three meals a day. And he had no sense of his ongoing dependence on God. And he said, I think I am losing my faith by living here. And this is what happens to us that the more we gain financially secure, uh, the more deluded we are in believing that our life is actually in our hands. And James is stark, he says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is a mist, he says. You think you're, you're in control, you're planning for like your kid's college and you're planning for your retirement, you're planning 10, 20, 30 years out. He says, you have no idea where you will be tomorrow. I mean, y- y'all, you don't even know if you're gonna make it through this sermon. By the end of this sermon, you might have breathed your last, the worldwide event, Jesus might return, seriously. Your life is a mist. I took a shower this morning, I'd be glad to hear, and uh, when, I, um, when I, I, I don't normally notice the mist in my bathroom, but I did this morning because I was thinking about this text, and when I got out of the shower, the, the, the mirror was covered in mist and fog, and so I just opened the door to our bedroom and let that cool, dry air in, and then I counted 22 seconds, the mist was gone. James says, that's your life. Things feel so permanent, they feel so stable, they feel so important, in just a few short years, you will be gone and forgotten. Do you even know your great-grandmother's first name? She was a a living person with blood coursing through her vein just a few decades ago. Now she's gone, and many of us don't even know her name. That's you, James says. hundred years, you won't be here. No one will know your name. You're a mist. So do not delude yourself into believing through the abundance around you that you are in control of your life. Or that you can control your future. Okay, that's warning number one. Y'all hearing that? Okay, number two, he says, is self indulgence. He lambasts the rich for amassing wealth and hoarding possessions, verse three, living in luxury, satisfying every desire. You know, I want to be clear, he's denouncing the rich not for being wealthy, but for what they've done with their wealth. Uh, Rather than using it as a tool to love the neighbor And to build up the common good And to to do the the work of mission They have used it to build up their own lifestyles And to accumulate and serve the self It's vital that we hear this Not just because we are a wealthy church uh, But because we live in a ridiculously wealthy society Never has a society existed That has so celebrated accumulation as a good In its own right Constantly commended the more you have, the more important and powerful that you are. And what's cruel and sick about it is that not only do we have more than any society in the history of the world, but we are constantly told what we lack. Do you know that the average American now, I couldn't believe this when I saw it, but the average American is exposed to four to 5,000 advertisements a day? It sounds shocking, but I checked multiple sources. I mean, with the 12 hours of media that the average adult consumes every day, Plus the fact that advertisers are now taking up every piece of visual real estate. I mean, I was in the airport yesterday, and I put my laptop in the tray for the TSA line, and there was an ad in the bottom of the tray. I was like, are you kidding me? I can't even escape the airport line, right? And so 5,000 times a day, we're told, you need this. Look at this. You deserve this. What you have is old. It's no longer cool. Here's the thing that you need. So we are being fueled and called into discontentment, this Deep. We live in an environment that fuels this desire to keep and get and possess and have a treadmill that never ends that never satisfies. And James says, "This is not just dangerous, it's stupid. Because he says, look, all this stuff on the way to destruction. Chapter 5, verse 1. Weep and groan with anguish because of the terror about to come upon you. Verse 3. Your wealth will eat away your flesh like fire. It will testify against you on the day of judgment. He is saying, uh, this, is, this is tough, y'all, but he's saying there is a day coming soon when Jesus, who is risen and reigning, will return and he will establish his kingdom and the current world order and economy will be overturned. And the person who insists on amassing wealth in this current world, even as that day approaches ever closer by the day, is a fool. Because you will be left with nothing. Randy Alcorn uses this illustration. He says, suppose that you are a northerner living in the south at the end of the Civil War. And you're living in the south. You, you're about to, you know the war's about to end. Uh, You know the union will win. You know you're returning home to the north. But in the meantime, while living there, you have amassed a whole load of Confederate currency. You know, what do you do? As as you know, the world, that that the war is about to end and that this currency is about to be worthless. Well, what do you do? If you are smart, there's only one thing you'll do. You will cash it in for U.S. dollars because only that money will have value when the war is over. If you were a Christian... You have the inside knowledge that the war is almost over. And that there will soon be an impending worldwide social and economic upheaval. you will have like the ultimate insider trading tip right here. <laughs> that the currency of this world will soon be worthless. And so if you're smart, you will switch investment vehicles. You will cash out now. You will spend your money on what actually matters. And Jesus said it. He said, do not spend your money and store up treasures where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break into steel. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, where moth and rust does not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. We can do that now. Our money can actually be used here and now to make internal investments that will not last 20, 30, 50 years, but a billion years, returning dividends for eternity. Investing in people, investing in the work of the church, investing in the advancement of Jesus' mission, investing in the poor. If you keep accumulating wealth now, then you are like a fool bankrolling confederate cash, spending it on yourself and homes and vacations and lifestyles and desires and experiences and doing so you behave like an ignorant animal fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. Okay, I'm just saying what the text says, (laughs) y'all. Okay, so... Number three, finally, in justice, he says, verse four, here, hear the cries of the field workers for whom you have cheated their pay. We don't know what's happening exactly. We know that there was a growing concentration of land being held by a smaller and smaller group of landowners. Farmers were being forced to, uh, sort of hire themselves out, and what clearly is happening is that these landowners were not paying fair wages or even wages at all. And in a society where there's no credit, this would often leave families in crisis, and sometimes it seems like for six, even ending up in death. What affluence all, all often does is it nurtures a carelessness and insensitivity to the poor, those who are most hurt by the pursuit of unchecked profit. Uh, those who are set on the bottom line of profit are far more prone to oppress. Uh, and to build systems that take advantage of weak people. And James says, God sees, God sees. Does this apply to us? I, I, I do think it does. I mean, no, none of us here that I know of are, have land and are paying day laborers, but many of, uh, of us in the church are, are significant business leaders of influence. Uh, we own businesses, we're leaders in influential industries in Richmond and around the world, and I think we would be very wise to take James' warning very seriously and to ask questions like are you ignoring practices in your company and business that are actually causing great harm uh, to vulnerable people? Um, Is your company so set on the singular bottom line of profit that you are doing it to the detriment of other vital bottom lines like human health and human flourishing? Um, are, Are you willfully choosing to ignore ways that your company or your industry may be failing to pay a just wage? Uh, or taking advantage of people who can't advocate for themselves? I mean, these are serious questions that we, as believers of influence, need to ask. And it's not just business CEOs and leaders, It it is all of us. Andy Crouch talks about how wealth creates like a bubble wrap around you. So that it is cushioning you and shielding you from the pain and the injustice of the world. And the more wealthy and industrialized a society becomes, the more cushioned and separated we are from those that we depend on for our labor. You know, my friend Chris Heuerts was once working for an international aid agency, and he actually visited uh, a slum in a major city in South India. And he walked into the home, and there was a a family and several daughters. The oldest daughter, who was a teenager, um, looked at Chris. Chris at the time was wearing a red button-down Gap uh, shirt that he bought at the Gap in Omaha. She looked at him, and her eyes brightened, and she said, "Um, I made that shirt. And he was shocked, of course, she was like, what? And she said, seriously, she asked to see the tag. Sure enough, tag says, made in India. And she was so happy. Uh, She was so excited that he was wearing the fruit of her labor. And then she asked, how much did you pay for it? And his heart was shattered because he paid more for the shirt in Omaha than she had made in an entire month. The cries of the workers cry out. Who you have cheated of their pay. So James says, Look, if you don't reflect on our purchasing habits and our lifestyles and recognize the ways that the way that we're living impacts real people, then we are among those that James condemns. And he points again to the day of judgment. The cries of those who harvest your field have reached the ears of the Lord's and Heaven's armies. God hears the cries of the oppressed and the poor, and He will act with justice. So, are you hearing the warnings? Wealth is dangerous. Unchecked, it produces pride and vanity, false security. It leaves us defenseless on the day of judgment. It produces oppression and injustice. Watch out, James says. Things look good in Richmond. They look good in the West End. They really do. But he says, if you're not careful, you will succumb to the toxic waste beneath that is in our water, in the air that we breathe. Jesus is coming. Judgment will fall on the greedy and the indifferent and those who oppress. So what will you do? Okay. Let's pray. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so, so, y'all, this is heavy, right? Heavy. We got to hear God's word. It's serious. Gets up in our business. But what do we do? Now, the, the, the text is clearly more focused on the problems and the solutions, but we can glean some positive treatment from the text. So, let's look at what, some of the positive treatments that Dr. James would prescribe to those suffering from affluenza. Okay, treatment number one, humility. He says in response to those who think that they have control, he calls them to have a humble, dependent posture. He says, verse 15, he says, you should say this, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that, if the Lord wills it. Now, he doesn't say you should say this literally like <laughs> like, hey, hon, I'm going to, the door to get egg, going to the store to get eggs, if the Lord so wills it. That would be super obnoxious, so, you know, don't, <laughs> don't do that. What he's saying is, is that you need to cultivate a, 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 a heart of dependence, to cultivate an attitude that recognizes that you are a frail creature with a very short life, and that you are not in control of the duration or the direction of your life, and that you are holding completely upon him. Some of you know that about five years ago, I had a health crisis uh, where I had a peritonsil abscess that was rapidly growing in my throat asphyxiating me, and I I had to be rushed to the emergency room. It was about 90 minutes from death, um, and they had to perform an emergency tracheostomy on me. And so for several weeks, almost a month, I couldn't talk or eat or walk. Sarah had to feed me. Um, It was a profound experience of dependence and humiliation. Um, And and I also now, because of that, have this major um, scar at the base of my neck. So every day when I look in the mirror, I see this scar. And to me, it has become a very precious scar uh, because I receive the scar as a reminder every day of my frailty, my dependence, my weakness, my fragility, uh, the knowledge that my life could end at any moment. Um, And it behooves me every morning that I look in the mirror to live my life for what actually matters. And James is saying you gotta figure out ways uh, to cultivate habits in your life that remind you of your own frailty and dependence, that you are not in control of your life and that your stuff is not yours. Uh, Now, I don't recommend having a health crisis and getting a major scar, um, but there are other ways we do that. When we come to worship every Sunday, we do this. We're reminded. When you come into worship, we're reminded you are not God. Uh, We confess our sin. You're reminded that you are a frail sinner in need of grace. We practice giving our money away at the offering, which is hard to do. Uh, We're sent out into the world to live not for ourselves, but for God and neighbor. Um, These are practicing every week uh, the discipline of dependence and humility. Uh, Also during the day, every day, I would recommend pausing throughout the day, morning, midday, evening, getting on your knees maybe, even as a sign of your dependence on the Father. Look for ways to remind yourself that your life is not your own, that you don't control your world or your future. So that's one thing, is look for practices of humility. Uh, Second, he recommends uh, simplicity. He condemns lavish lifestyle, And in contrast to that, we can live lives of simplicity. Simplicity is an ancient Christian discipline, and it just simply means, I like this definition, living lightly, living lightly. Last summer, you guys were very generous to give my family and I three months sabbatical, and we spent five weeks of that in Europe where I was working on my doctoral studies and we were doing some traveling. And um, when we left, we told our four girls, you know, you can't bring any suitcase, you can bring your school backpack, and that's it. And that was an adventure, sort of figuring out how we were going to live five weeks as pilgrims traveling across Europe with nothing but a backpack, and it meant that we could only bring what was absolutely necessary, and we had to have conversations about it. No, you, you know, your entire Star Wars Lego collection is not a necessity. You cannot bring that in your backpack, you know. And so what, what James is saying is that if you're a Christian, um, you're a pilgrim. You're a pilgrim who needs to learn how to travel light. This, this particular earth 1.0 is not our home, is not our final destination. We are pilgrims on the way, moving towards a better city, moving towards the new Jerusalem, the new creation where Jesus reigns, and therefore live like a pilgrim, taking along with you only what is necessary for the journey. Cultivate simplicity. What, that, what might that mean? It might mean fostering gratitude um, to fuel contentment rather than discontentment that your iPhone pushes to you every single day. Um, deeper community, one of the great gifts of our parish life at a church is that we are now very aware of the fellow Christians who are living around us, and so you, the possibility of you actually learning how to share common goods like lawnmowers or table saws or gas grills, actually we can begin to actually le- learn what it means to resist self-sufficient independence and live greater interdependent lives. That's a practice of simplicity. But above all, simplicity means being very careful about our lifestyles. Choosing deliberately to live below your means, and asking what is the minimum that you need to live on, and doing something else with the rest of it, and every decision that you make, and car that you buy, and home that you purchase, and piece of clothing that you wear, approaching it, not as a permanent resident of the earth, but as a pilgrim, traveling through. So simplicity. One last thing, uh, generosity. When uh, Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler who said, how do I get to heaven, Interestingly, Jesus did not say pray this sinner's prayer and you will go to heaven Instead he said go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me Jesus knew this guy had a serious illness and he needed serious treatment and that treatment was generosity It was giving everything away And what we find is that giving doesn't just benefit other people The person that it benefits most is ourselves. It sets us free. It breaks the hold on possessions that often possess us uh, some of you have heard me tell the infamous uh, bowl story from the Widmer household that, you know when, um, when, you know, when you get married and you have a registry and uh, you register for lots of stuff, usually the husband participates uh, very minimally in that process. And I, I only registered for two things, a chessboard and a beautifully hand-turned wooden bowl. I loved that bowl. It was gorgeous. Uh, sometimes I would just gaze upon it. Uh, It was beautiful craftsmanship. I loved it. It was my most prized possession, I think, at least mine. So one day, a couple years into marriage, we're sitting down. We have a couple over for dinner, and this couple looks at this bowl, and they're like, man, the the woman in the couple says, man, that is just the most beautiful bowl. And my wife, who has the most generous, spontaneous heart, says, oh, why don't you just have it? (laughs) And I, you know, outside, I was like... (laughs) And inside, I was like, woman, what are you doing? Uh, and, she, and, and then they left, and I was just so angry. I could not believe. I said, that's the one thing. The one thing I registered, really if you give it away. And what was so weird about it is that it was actually a powerful spiritual moment for me because I realized what a strange attachment I had developed <laughs> to this wooden bowl and it wasn't until I gave it away that I realized the possessive hold that it had on my heart and this is what giving does it actually sort of sets your heart free and it sets you free you know and what should that how much should you give I I mean enough to set your heart free and that often means pain like the bowl for me you know the 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 classic uh standard for Christians is 10 percent of your income that and that might not sound like a lot, but actually we know that the average Christian in America only gives away two to 3% of their income. Um, and I'm not saying that um, you should be rigid and legalistic about that as a, as a percentage, but I think for many of us, that can work like training wheels. Sort of giving that as a bare standard, uh, training blocks, training wheels if you will, that can help you eventually become a person who doesn't need to have a percentage anymore because you're living a life of such natural extravagant generosity. Uh, For me and Sarah, we need the training wheels. Uh, We're in a period of our life where life, I mean, stuff is financially tight sometimes, and uh, we've got four girls that we hope will go to college and we hope we'll get married, oh God help me. Um, (laughs) And so, like, my natural tendency would not at all be to take 10%, that's a lot for us. But to do that every single month is a powerful way For us to be saying, this is not ours. We are not at the center of our life. We're being liberated and free. And it is a powerful act of freedom to be able to let that go and use it for the work of the kingdom that lasts forever. Uh, I know that it's complicated and some of you are dealing with serious debt and other things that make this really hard. I can't cover all that stuff now. But I do want to say we have a class starting this fall called Financial Peace University. And it's a, a lot of people in church have done it, and it can be a really helpful class to help you figure out debt and budgeting and giving and all that. So I commend that. So let me sum up. James tells us about the toxic danger of wealth which always threatens to destroy. And yet in and through Jesus Christ, he says, we can be treated, and not just treated, transformed, so that we become people who are transformational, non-conforming pilgrims, who are living lightly in the world on our way to Zion, on the way to the kingdom. One of my favorite descriptions of the gospel comes from 1 Corinthians 8, that says, actually 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let me tell you, friends. This is the gospel. The rich Christ became poor so that you poor sinner might become rich. He emptied, divested himself of his eternal wealth that you might share in his eternal family, that you might be rich. And the closer you are to this Jesus, the more you feed on his grace every day, the closer you walk with him, the more you will become a person who is deeply content with what you have because you are all sufficient in him. The more you will have deep security knowing that you do not know tomorrow but you do know how the story ends. You know where you will be in a billion years. You know how all things end and you are secure in the Father's hands and you will be a person who in receiving the generous, extravagant grace of God and Jesus for you now cannot help but to be an engine, a comet of grace and generosity for those around you. We are all inflicted. We've all got it. Affluenza, will you be healed? Will you be healed? Let's pray.